Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. The contemporary military is discharging service members with bad paper at a vastly higher rate than any other time in our history, at a much higher rate than during the Vietnam era, World War II, so forth. There are tens of thousands of former service members who have been discharged with bad paper, often wrongly so. These are often wrongful discharge cases where the discharge is based on race discrimination, a failure to account for undiagnosed disabilities such as PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, we know that the most common response to a report of sexual harassment or assault in the military is a retaliatory discharge of the complainant. There are a a very large number of people being discharged at unprecedented rates wrongfully. And the consequences, as we'll talk about later, are quite substantial. So there's a huge need, but there's also a huge opportunity. Hello, welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm your host, Will Gunn, General Counsel at the Legal Services Corporation. In today's episode, we discuss how unfavorable discharges, also known as bad paper, impacts specific veteran populations, including veterans of color, women, transgender and gender diverse veterans, LGBTQ plus veterans, and veterans who have experienced military sexual trauma, traumatic brain injuries, or other behavioral health conditions. We'll also discuss how legal aid providers can support veterans with bad paper and ensure their access to vital services. We have a great very experienced panel with us today. Our guests are Lindsay Church, Carolyn Colley, Margaret Kuzma, and Mike Wishney. I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about Lindsay. Lindsay Church, the executive director and co-founder of Minority Veterans of America, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to creating an equitable and just world for the minority veteran community. Lindsay has nearly a decade of experience in veterans advocacy and grassroots organizing. They're also a veteran of the US Navy where they served as a cryptologic technician interpretive. Lindsay, to kick things off, I'd be very interested in just your thoughts on what you would like our audience to take away from today's discussion. The most important thing that I think I would like people to take away from this is that not all service looks the same. Many veterans have disparate outcomes as a result of their experiences. A lot of it is rooted on lived experience and their identity. And I think that's really important when it comes to discharge status and life after the military. So really recognizing that, especially from the legal perspective, that minority veterans are disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system, both in and out of service. Thanks, Lindsay. Our next panelist is Carolyn Colley. Carolyn is here in her personal capacity However, she is a VA attorney who has worked on suicide issues. This is a personal issue for her because Carolyn's three brothers, Private First Class Stephen Colley, Major Alan Colley, and Matthew Colley died by suicide. Therefore, Carolyn is deeply passionate about suicide prevention. Carolyn, what 
takeaway would you like our audience to gain from our discussion today? Thank you so much for having me today. I think the number one thing that I hope everyone hears today is that there is hope, there is help out there, there are resources. I think there can be times where the system can seem overwhelming. There can seem like there's maybe nowhere to turn, but there are places to go. There are resources out there. And there's a lot of them, whether that's calling the Veterans Crisis Line or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or contacting a community organization that's out there, there's places to go. I really encourage everyone to reach out for help themselves, or if you see someone else struggling, if you have a client that that might be kind of in that period where they're they're feeling like there isn't anything, really encourage them to reach out and know that there are services out there for them. Thanks, Carolyn. Our next panelist, Mike Wishney, is a clinical professor of law and counselor to the dean at Yale Law School, where he directs the Veterans Legal Services Clinic and co-directs the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. Recently, Mike and his students served as lead counsel in three nationwide class action lawsuits on behalf of post 9-11 veterans with less than honorable discharges. And as a point of personal privilege, I'd just like to say that uh, Mike and I crossed paths, I believe close to a decade ago when the uh, Yale Veterans Legal Clinic was just getting ready to kick off. Pleasure to have you with us, Mike. And if you could respond to the question as well, what takeaway would you like our audience to have or to gain from today's discussion? Uh, thank you very much, Will, and thank you for being one of the very first people to welcome me into this space, especially as someone who didn't serve himself and doesn't come from a military family. I appreciated your welcome more than 10 years ago and, and today as well. I think the most important takeaways are first that there is an enormous set of unmet legal and human needs for veterans with bad paper, and second, that there are enormous opportunities for lawyers and other advocates to help people here. First on the needs, the, con the contemporary military is discharging service members with bad paper at a vastly higher rate than any other time in our history, at a much higher rate than during the Vietnam era, World War II, so forth. There are tens of thousands of former service members who have been discharged with bad paper, often wrongly so. These are often wrongful discharge cases where the discharge is based on race discrimination, a failure to account for undiagnosed disabilities such as PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, we know that the most common response to a report of sexual harassment or assault in the military is a retaliatory discharge of the complainant. There are a, a very large number of people being discharged at unprecedented rates wrongfully. And the consequences, as we'll talk about later, are quite substantial. So there's a huge need, but there's also a huge opportunity because there are systems in place, back-end systems, that allow individual veterans to apply to upgrade their discharges. And those systems have been under scrutinized, but in recent years, they've received more attention, including from other panelists today, and they're functioning a bit better than they used to be. And that means that lawyers can help veterans and non-lawyers as well to access their opportunity to upgrade their discharge and correct a historic wrong. Thanks, Mike. 
Our next panelist is Margaret Kuzma. She's an attorney in the Veterans Legal Clinic at the Legal Services Center of Harvard Law School. She's also the lead author of the Military Discharge Upgrade Legal Practice Manual, which was published by the American Bar Association earlier this year. And I will say I've reviewed that manual. I highly, highly recommend it, an excellent work. Prior to Margaret's work at Harvard, she directed the Veterans Inclusion Project and the Discharge Upgrade Practice at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. Margaret, as we released this podcast just prior to Veterans Day, what is it that you would like our listeners to take away from this session? Thank you, Will, and thanks to everyone at LSC for putting this together. I'm thrilled to be here. I would say that with Veterans Day coming up, we tend to think about what sets veterans apart from civilians. Nowadays, that because they volunteered, over 99% of us didn't have to serve in the longest war in our nation's history. And that sacrifice should be absolutely celebrated on Veterans Day and every day. But in setting veterans apart, I don't want people to lose sight of all the similarities that veterans have. Veterans like the rest of the American population struggle with poverty, with systemic discrimination, with access to justice. So for people without military backgrounds out there, whether they're lawyers, advocates, activists, it's important that in celebrating veterans, we don't other them and instead see veterans issues as an intrinsic part of the larger fight for social justice. I love that, that we don't other them. Appreciate that. Mike, can you help us to all get on the same page by giving us a brief overview of the military discharge process? Sure. So very briefly, about 200,000 service members conclude their service each year and transition back to civilian life. Service members may do so by taking retirement, by completing a contract of enlistment, by suffering or experiencing an injury or disability that requires them to end their service, or because they're kicked out, essentially because they're fired. Um, and it's that last group that I think is the main focus of our conversation today. Before the late 19th century, there were not so many categories of discharge status, but today there are two broad kinds of discharges and within them several different terms. Administrative discharges are exactly what they sound like, an administrative process, generally informal, by which someone concludes their service and receives either an honorable discharge, a status of general under honorable conditions, or third, other than honorable. There are also punitive discharges, which can result only from court-martial proceedings, bad conduct discharges, and dishonorable discharges. Generally speaking, and we'll get into this more later, I believe, generally speaking, only an honorable discharge, the top of the pyramid, makes one eligible for the full range of benefits and services that we associate with uh, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and State Departments of Veterans Affairs. Once someone receives less than a fully honorable discharge, they begin to lose eligibility bit by bit and then all at once for VA healthcare, VA educational benefits, burial benefits, housing assistance, disability compensation. 
And so the worse the status of discharge, um, the less access to care. And because unfortunately there's a substantial overlap between those with undiagnosed PTSD or traumatic brain injury or other difficulties who get bad paper, some of the veterans most in need of services are the least able to access them. Thanks, Mike. Margaret, what's meant by the term bad paper? So bad paper generally refers to the spectrum of discharges that are less than fully honorable. So all of the characterizations that Mike just mentioned, the punitive, bad conduct, and dishonorable discharges, as well as administrative discharges, such as under other than honorable conditions and sometimes general under honorable discharges are considered bad paper as well. And veterans with bad paper have higher rates of mental health conditions, suicide, homelessness, and unemployment. Many have disabilities related to their service, which may have in fact led to their being discharged with bad paper. Mike mentioned that as well. And many were discharged with bad paper under past discriminatory practices that targeted veterans because of their sexual orientation or sexual identity. And the bad paper itself has a detrimental effect on a veteran's transition success. For instance, bad paper may inhibit their ability to access veteran services and benefits, both on a state and a federal level. But it's, it's important to note that Bad paper doesn't necessarily mean that a veteran is barred from services. Depending on the type of bad paper and the circumstances surrounding the discharge, veterans with bad paper may qualify for VA or state benefits via one of several legislative exceptions or through the VA's character of discharge process. So don't let bad paper dissuade veterans from trying for those benefits. Thanks, Margaret. Lindsay, can you discuss the discharge experiences of minority veteran populations? I think it's important to understand that many people think about the military as an egalitarian experience. It's that you work hard, you do your job, and you, you, know, you stay in the military long enough, you earn rank, and you keep going. And that just seems to be the idea that everybody's equal, everybody has like equal footing in the system. And that is true in one sense, but also you have to understand that the military is run by people and people hold bias and people hold prejudice. And it's important to understand that people built the system. So when you're looking at character of discharge, when you're looking at the way that people are criminalized in service, it's important to understand identity matters. So when you're looking at the justice system, the justice system in the military is run internally. It's not like the civilian legal system. Actually, military holds its own justice system, which means that the military also holds itself accountable which has been a larger conversation about accountability within the military. So understanding that humans run the, the system, it's also used as a retaliatory measure. Oftentimes people who report sexual assault, sexual harassment are administratively removed, or in the case of Tae she was put in the brig. After she reported her sexual assault, she was left in the brig to do solo time or isolated experience. So understanding that this is often used as a retaliatory measure. When we look back in history, we look at the ways that, that minorities have experienced military service. So veterans of color were first discriminated against, segregated against. Once integration happened, you saw a lot of opportunities for people to use the justice system within the military to remove these folks from service. And you still see this today in the instances of racial bias within the discharge characterization. So if you look at discharge status, oftentimes you're going to see a higher or an elevated rate of discharge, bad paper discharge for veterans of color, LGBTQ folks, MST survivors, because this bias is infused into the system. 
LGBTQ folks experience the system differently as well. You see about 114,000 known cases of folks in history that were removed under homosexual conduct. That's just who we know. Because when you also look at how criminality happens, you look at not just homosexual conduct. Somebody is more likely to get in trouble if they're perceived to be other. They're more likely to be taken to court martial or to captain's mass for minor infractions when somebody else is often let to go or given some type of extra duty or something like that where somebody else is kicked out altogether. I often say that the military has a um, military to prison pipeline for veterans of color and for trans folks. So if you look at the rate of incarceration of specifically Black and African-American, Indigenous, Latinx, and trans folks, you're going to see a higher and elevated rate of incarceration after service of those folks, because in service, you're also criminalized. Your actions, your behaviors, everything that you do is left under a microscope when you identify as other. The same thing happens with behavioral health. When we look at the post 9-11 generation, there's a lot of trauma in military service, especially when you've been at war for 20 years. When you look at the way that veterans cope, it's often misunderstood that somebody has a drinking problem or they get in trouble in a like substance abuse instance. It's not always that they just didn't do the right thing. It's that trauma shows up in people's lives in a different way. And so when you look at military sexual trauma survivors, you look at people with post-traumatic stress, you look at Anybody who's endured trauma in their service are more likely to get in trouble as a result of their mental health crises that are undiagnosed or unchecked because the military is also not good at providing for the mental health needs of its service members. So holistically, this, this experience of discharge is disparate for minority communities and for people who have experienced trauma. Lindsay, just, just as a quick follow-up, you uh, mentioned a, a person who made a, I believe it was a... Uh, a report of sexual uh, sexual assault and then was thrown into the brig. Can, can yeah. you discuss that specific uh, case? Because I think it's, it's instructive. There was a case earlier this year. Her name was Tei She was in the Marines. She was assaulted in Japan. I mind you, I'm paraphrasing. So if I, some of my details are a little hazy, I apologize. She returned to the States and she reported her sexual assault. She got in trouble when she got home. She got into an altercation with one of her boyfriends. Her boyfriend called the police because he was afraid. She was then arrested. And rather than being given the opportunity to go to get mental health treatment, which she recognized that she was very clearly experiencing mental health crisis, she was able to go get some mental health treatment and immediately put into the brig. After the fact, she was put into the brig. She was put under isolation because of COVID. She wasn't allowed to see anybody. She wasn't allowed to talk to most people. She wasn't allowed to do pretty much anything. And her mental health suffered for it. As she was trying to report her sexual assault, none of us could understand why she was still being detained because even her boyfriend, the person that was in the altercation, said that he didn't want to press charges. The Marines, however, said, we are going to press charges and we're going to put her in the brig and we're going to leave her there. She was there for months under isolation. She was finally released recently. She was also given a bad paper discharge from the Marines. Thank you. It, uh, I think that's very descriptive of the kinds of things that, that can happen. With with that, uh, Carolyn, can you talk about, well, first of all, the disproportionate impacts for specific veteran populations of, of bad paper? And what are the impacts of bad paper on the work that you do with respect to battling uh, suicide amongst veterans? One of the things that's kind of already uh, been brought up several times by Lindsay and by Margaret is that 
bad papers can have a, uh, a huge impact on the mental health of individuals. And so suicide is a national public health issue that disproportionately affects veterans. Veterans are 1.5 times more likely to die by suicide than non-veterans. Uh, when controlling for gender, women veterans are 2.2 times more likely to die by suicide than of a woman who has not served in the military. So these numbers are pretty staggering, especially when you think about what Margaret said. These individuals are, are you know, kind of just like the rest of us. But it's unmet legal, physical, and mental health needs that are these adverse social determinants of health. Some research studies have shown that the presence of these adverse social determinants may increase a veteran's risk of suicide by as much as 49%. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. What happens is those individuals that have bad paper, they might lack access to services. Therefore, they're going to have these unmet needs. They're also more likely to have co-occurring issues. So you might have housing issues combined with financial issues, combined with family issues, and all of that is weighing in on a mental health issue that could be exacerbating a pre-existing mental health issue. And so all of these kind of come in together. And if you envision almost like a tornado of events that happens, and all the while these individuals may feel that there are not services out there for them because they may be kind of getting a, a closed door for some of those services. It's, it's a negative flywheel, if, if mm -hmm. you will. One form of trouble leads, leads to another, leading to bad paper, which leads yep. to all types of other negative outcomes. Absolutely. Mike, I want to come back to you. Can you discuss opportunities for veterans to upgrade their discharge status under emerging law and policy? To begin, during World War II, Congress established two sets of boards in each service branch to which service members could apply to correct an error or upgrade their discharge status. And the uh, Congresses that established these boards directed that they act generously. I think the thinking was Congress didn't want to deeply regulate the discharge process itself. Those decisions are often made in haste in the field um, by a young uh, officer who may not have complete information. And Congress didn't want to bureaucratize those decisions, but they did want to create a meaningful safety net at the back end, a robust opportunity for people who might have been discharged in haste without fully appreciating their circumstances, the opportunity to avoid the kind of lifetime stigma um, and uh, legal difficulties we've been talking about. So each service branch has two boards to which service members can apply. It's somewhat remarkable as a civil rights lawyer, I've practiced under a number of different statutes. Um, and uh, when Congress wrote the statutes governing these boards, they said, essentially, a service member can apply for an upgrade based on either to correct either an error or an injustice. That is, the veteran has to demonstrate either that a mistake was made or no mistake was made. The legal standard is it's just unfair. That is a broad and generous standard. I go into immigration court all the time. There is no opportunity to say everything was done right. It's just unfair. Please don't deport my client. But for veterans, Congress created this very generous standard. Unfortunately, for many years, in my view, the boards established by Congress did not function as Congress meant for them to do. And in the post-Vietnam era in particular, those boards became very harsh. 
and came to routinely deny applications, even meritorious applications by service members. There's been some improvement recently, and that's one reason that I encourage those listening, either veterans or their allies or advocates or lawyers considering working in this area um, to enter this space. There have been important improvements at these boards, some a result of litigation, some a result of legislation, and some, I believe, simply a result of greater attention by senior leadership in the Defense Department and the service branches to make sure that these boards function as they're supposed to. The boards have become more accessible as well, and I know this is uh, of great concern. Previously, you could apply on paper, or for some boards, you had a right to go to Washington, D.C. and be heard in person. But of course, for a veteran living in Texas or Florida or California, getting to Washington, D.C. to appear in person was not easy. And as a result, most of these decisions were made just on paper when it's easier to just say no. As a result of uh, litigation that we've been part of here in the clinic, the Army has now uh, agreed to implement a universal telephonic hearing program so that veterans can uh, proceed to a hearing on their applications from their living room. The Navy, who hear both Navy and Marine Corps cases, has agreed, subject to final court approval, not only to telephonic appearances, but to a video conference program so that service members can appear in hearings by video from their living room if they prefer and take fuller advantage of these boards. It's also the case that the um, approval rates at these boards have increased. Again, I think in part because of greater uh, advocacy and attention in the media uh, by legal services organizations, and by senior officials, in, as well as uh, members of Congress. These boards are getting more uh, attention, and I think they're doing a better job of what Congress meant for them to do. I don't mean to suggest they're there yet. We're still suing a bunch of them, <laughs> but they have improved, uh, and I hope that they will continue to improve. I work directly with minority veterans in the communities that are largely disproportionately impacted by the justice system and bad paper discharges. And so one, the discharge process or discharge upgrade process can be really lengthy and really take years sometimes for people to get through them. There's also a large population of people that have just given up, that just said, you know what, my military service was already hard enough. I was already pushed out of a system. I'm not wanted there. So even though there is a process in which you can appeal and upgrade your discharge, there are many people that just don't because it's not worth the time, the trauma, the energy, the money, the everything that it requires to be able to access these systems. I think it's really important to understand that while they are getting better, it's getting better for some, not necessarily all. Even with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 10 years after the fact, we are still working on upgrading discharges of people who served under this policy that we now know, and we probably knew all along, was inhumane, unjust, and it should never have been a policy. These character of discharges are not automatically upgraded. People still have to apply. They still have to go through this process. It's very cumbersome. That's very traumatic. That's very trying. And often people just have already lost faith in a system that's already failed them. So I think it's important to note that for minority veterans who have been pushed out of the system and for people even with mental health crisis that have been pushed out of the system, it's really hard for them to want to return to a place in which they were harmed and where they were hurt. So outreach measures by VA, DOD haven't really hit the mark when it comes to upgrading, especially the discharges for people that served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We know that that process should be faster, easier, but it's not. 
And while Congress is working on trying to make these better, it's still important to note that right where we are right now is still disparate outcomes for, for minority veterans. And I agree with everything that you just said, Lindsay. Uh, absolutely. We wouldn't be spending so much time suing the reports if we thought they absolutely. were doing what they should. It's no disagreement to say, nevertheless, that I hope people will hold on to some hope, not because it's easy, not because it's fast, not because it's as fair as it should be. But I'm encouraged that more legal services offices are coming into this space. It's now the case, uh, I didn't tick off some of the other accessibility points. The Navy boards have agreed to online submission portal, and both the Army and the Navy boards have agreed that even with just a very basic form submitted, people will get an automatic response with uh, referrals to medical and legal services that may be able to help them. But you're right, many people still cannot access the legal and medical services they need to effectively make out a case. And even when they can access those services, the boards take too long and they still deny too many meritorious cases. And we may talk a little bit later about what the world should look like. I don't know why we have some of these boards at all, but I want to highlight one other thing you said, which is that despite some improvements in the boards, not enough, I completely agree that the Defense Department has done no outreach, no meaningful outreach to significant populations of veterans who wrongfully received bad paper. And your example of those discharged during Don't Ask, Don't Tell and previously is, is the most powerful one of all. Perhaps 500,000 service members discharged since World War II for being homosexual in the language of the statutes or, or acting so and the Defense Department has rejected repeated requests from Congress, from advocates, from lawyers to affirmatively advise those 500,000 people of their opportunity to get an, to secure an upgrade and to obtain legal representation if they seek it. As a result, DOD just sits back and waits for people to come forward. That's not a responsible way to treat half a million wrongfully discharged service members, in my view. Thank you very, very much. Greatly appreciate the exchange there. What I'd like to do is, is shift slightly to just the idea of what advocates can do to help veterans. We have programs such as yours, Mike, where, where you're su suing the government to bring about change. In that one-on-one -on -one setting, I know pers personally, I recently had a very good result in a, a discharge up upgrade case, but that case took more than five years from the time that I first made contact with, with my client, who was a African-American victim of sexual assault. Even after new policies had come down, it just languished at the board. I believe that the boards have not been adequately resourced to take care of the volume of cases that they have. But with that in mind, in order to get there, in order to, to represent and to help those individual veterans, Margaret, I'd like to turn to you. As I mentioned earlier in introducing you, you've put out a fantastic guide, user-friendly, that has all types, just all types of examples, breaking it down. And what advice do you have for the legal aid community to assist veterans in, in these discharge upgrade or character uh, characterization of, of uh, 
of discharge proceedings. Thanks, Will, and congratulations on your case. Sorry it took so long, <laughs> but thank you for being persistent and, and to your client for being persistent. So, you know, as Lindsay and Mike and Carolyn and everyone has said, there's so much need. In World War II, over 98% of service members received honorable discharges. And in the post 9-11 era, it's less than 85. So a lot of need. And the vast majority of veterans who try for upgrades are trying pro se. And the vast majority are unsuccessful. So representation can, can make such a difference. As a first step, legal aid providers should screen veteran clients for dis discharge upgrade eligibility. And if an upgrade is needed, providers should help clients determine which process, whether it's a Department of Defense discharge upgrade or a VA character of discharge, which will help them achieve their goals and then help them submit the necessary applications. I know I make that sound easy. We've talked about how it's a very long process and cumbersome and, and difficult. I know that approaching a new area of law can be intimidating, especially if it involves an entity like the military that most people aren't familiar with. But making this area of the law more approachable was really part of our inspiration for writing the new Discharge Upgrade Manual. What we've tried to do with the manual is provide veterans' rights advocates a comprehensive guide to discharge upgrade law. We really tried to break everything down into a step-by-step -step process. Using this guide, advocates will be able to develop upgrade petitions by identifying procedural errors and separation processes, finding inequities and injustices and discharges, collecting and developing documents that support arguments for relief, and then framing everything in the most persuasive light while preserving legal issues for appellate courts where that's appropriate. The manual also provides guidance about accessing the VA through the character of discharge review process. With the manual, we've, we've really tried to create a resource for advocates at all levels. And I should also mention that you don't have to be an attorney to represent a veteran in a discharge upgrade. Veteran service officers and other advocates can be invaluable resources for veterans so that they don't have to try to navigate the system alone. Thanks very much, Margaret. I'm wondering, Carolyn, I'd like to turn to you. Some of our listeners will undoubtedly be attorneys, but others are not. And as we all know, that even when we're talking about any type of administrative or judicial proceeding, you're not going to win every case. With that being said, how can legal aid providers and other service providers support veterans who have bad paper? Perhaps those people that have tried and been unsuccessful in having uh, their discharge upgraded. What can we do for those folks? I think the number one thing is that collaboration is key. Try to develop those relationships with community organizations or law school clinics or services you know, inside VA that are available to all veterans, even if they do have bad papers. Get all of that kind of you know, started ahead of time before that veteran seeks your assistance. One of the, my favorite things about working as a legal aid attorney when I was out in Texas was being part of the Veterans Treatment Court at Fort Hood. And what I loved is that we had all these individuals around the table and we're trying to talk about all these co-occurring issues that the veteran was having and how can we fix them, right? If you're only focused on one single aspect, you often will 
not be solving that veteran's problem. And so they have a housing issue. We would, we would contact a community service that perhaps could help with that. We would contact VA to see if they could get mental health care. We would contact DJO for the, for the legal side, that kind of thing. As a legal aid attorney, I might help them with other family issue, family law case that matters. So all of that is key, I think, in this area. And then the other side is that there are new initiatives from VA that do allow for veterans that have other than honorable discharges to receive services. So starting in 2017, there was one initiative that allows for veterans that are experiencing a mental health issue to get emergency stabilization care up to 90 days of care past that for their mental health issue. And during that time, the VHA, the Veterans Health Administration, and the Veterans Benefits Administration work together to figure out if that condition that they might be experiencing is related to their service. And if so, then they might be eligible for ongoing coverage of that. So it's about collaboration. It's about working with our community partners and everybody kind of like coming together, which I think is Frankly, the fact that we have this podcast is a great example of that we're doing that. So thanks for bringing us together and making that happen. Well, thank you. Appreciate your work. Lindsay, I'd like to turn to you. In, in terms of, do you have any specific advice for legal aid providers and again, other service providers to make sure that the support that they provide considers the special issues of minority veterans? I think there's two things that I have. One, cultural competency is key. And second, take an intersectionality approach. On the issue of cultural competency, as I mentioned earlier, the military legal system is a whole other entity on its own. It has a lot of different components to it, things that are completely different than the civilian legal system. And so understanding those nuances is one, really important, but two, will help you understand the process yourself. And then understanding what we've gone through Understanding where your client is coming from is going to build that trust and that faith with them. That trust and faith with veterans, I can't understate how important that is. Veterans have to trust you to be able to use you in any capacity, especially veterans who have been harmed by the system are less likely to trust anybody. So it's really important to figure out ways that you can create that bond with your clients in order to be able to better serve them. We also have a whole other language of our own, and it's very jargony. It has a lot of numbers. It has a lot of random things. As you mentioned, when you first introduced me, I was a cryptologic technician interpretive, which is just a fancy way of saying I was a linguist. So that's just a, one example of all of the different ways in which the military jargon is really complicated. There's a lot of different resources out there in order for you to be able to learn about the veteran community. There are many organizations that teach cultural competency baseline. I know with, with the intersectionality approach, when you're looking at minority populations and military populations, it's a little bit harder to find that information, but there are organizations like my own that the whole thing that we do is train and educate on what impacts of service are to the minority veteran population. So when you look at both military and minority populations, you see this intersection of marginalization. Minority veterans in very specific populations are more likely to have bad paper discharges and on the outside are more likely to be involved with the justice system because our whole society is also built in a very similar manner in a very similar fashion with bias and discrimination built into it. So understanding how these intersections happen and what that means for each one of your clients is really important to being able to win their cases for them. Understanding how LGBTQ status, race and ethnicity, gender, how religion, how disability status, how trauma, all of these things bring different and unique experiences for each one of the veterans and is also largely related to their bad paper. 
So understanding how these two systems play together and how identity matters within all of this is only going to make you more able to one, build trust with your client and two, to win those cases so that their lives can change because the impacts of a bad paper discharge, which we didn't really talk about, are enormous when it comes to mental health outcomes, when it comes to physical health outcomes. Carolyn, you talked about suicide. Minority veterans are more likely to die by suicide than almost every one of their dominant culture counterparts. And that's not by accident. When you look at homelessness and you look at, I mean, you can look at substance use disorder, you can look at almost anywhere, you're gonna see that minority veterans are more disproportionately impacted by most of these systems. When you look at bad paper discharges, you also have to look at the poverty draft and the reason why people join for service. The fact that they're being removed under a bad paper discharge, not allowed access to their benefits is deeply disheartening when we over-recruit minority populations who come from poverty and we offer them the opportunity to get out of poverty through going to school, through buying homes, through all of these things that we set up as incentives for military service are actually taken away with a bad paper discharge. And if you're more likely to be recruited from poor communities, you also have probably co-occurring conditions. You have complex post-traumatic stress. Going into the military, you're not as apt to be able to, to manage the stress, to manage the trauma. All of these different things, they create this like whirlwind of effect of how we harm people with the military in general and how the military legal system harms our communities. Thanks, Lindsay. I greatly appreciate it. I am inspired as uh, I've listened to each, each of you. I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate your participation today, Lindsay, Mike, Margaret, Carolyn. Thank you so very much for your contributions to veterans, for helping those who are serving us. We appreciate it. For Legal Services Corporation, I'm Will Gunn. Thank you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.